Welcome back to Roshcast for episode number 25. Wow, episode 25? We're at the big 2-5? Isn't this technically our silver anniversary then? I presume you got me a gift to celebrate, right? Of course, I got you another episode of High Quality Board Review. Perfect gift, right? But in all seriousness, Roshcast has come a long way. Just think back to how this all got started. Yeah, it seems like just yesterday you came up with this idea of a high-yield, core-content, question-and-answer-style board review podcast, which you promised would keep listeners active and engaged instead of letting them zone out. But it didn't quite become a reality until we spoke with Adam Rosh and a set of mics arrived from Rosh Review in the mail. We owe Adam a tremendous thanks for all the support and guidance throughout this process. And don't forget Ander, our editor, who does tons of heavy lifting behind the scenes. Roshcast now has listeners all across the country and from almost every state. As a small token of our appreciation, we're doing a little giveaway. The prize is a subscription to Rosh Review. Sometime in episodes 26 to 30, we'll have a trauma question preceded by a trauma phone ringtone. When you hear it, tweet at Roshcast or email us at Roshcast at RoshReview.com with the exact time in the episode and we'll hook you up with the prize. And who doesn't love prizes? I definitely do. But for now, let's get on with the rapid review. We just discussed this last week, but it'll be easy points when it comes to the in-training exam, so it's worth reviewing. Let's talk fish poisonings. Which fish poisoning is classically associated with hot and cold sensation reversal? Hot and cold sensation reversal is classically associated with cigatera poisoning. And which fish poisoning is associated with a peppery or metallic taste? In scombroid poisonings, patients have reported a metallic, bittery, or even peppery taste. Great. And one last one here, and it might seem kind of ridiculous, but it has real treatment implications, so it's important. What molecule is being metabolized to what breakdown product in scombroid poisonings? Histidine is broken down into histamine, which is why you treat patients supportively with antihistamines. Perfect. Let's get on with this week's new material. From the ocean to the mountains, we're headed up to high altitude this week. After ascending to an altitude of 9,200 feet, a climber develops a mild bifrontal headache associated with nausea. He feels hungover, but denies drinking any alcohol the previous night. He has no other symptoms. On exam, there are no focal neurologic deficits. He desires to continue the climb. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? Is it A, administer acetazolamide, B, administer dexamethasone, C, arrange to be airlifted to a lower altitude, or D, continue to ascend but at a slower rate? We mentioned this last time in the haste discussion, but this is the milder form, or acute mountain sickness, which should be treated with choice A, administer acetazolamide. Remember that acute mountain sickness is characterized by a headache, nausea, dizziness, and sleep disturbances. It's usually seen with rapid ascent of an unacclimatized person at 2,000 meters or higher. Age has little influence on the incidence, but individuals with cardiac or pulmonary comorbidities are at increased risk. And just as this question hinted at, typical symptoms of mild acute mountain sickness closely resemble a hangover. With respect to the headache specifically, when people suffer from altitude-related headaches, they're usually bifrontal and worsen with bending over or performing a Valsalva maneuver. Why don't you also walk us through the treatment algorithm that this question was getting at? Sure. Mild acute mountain sickness is usually self-limited and generally improves after 12 to 36 hours of acclimatization if ascent is suspended. If it does not, primary treatment involves descent either physically or virtually through pressure chambers such as the gamma bag. Oxygen may also provide some relief. If you're treating pharmacologically, acetazolamide is the initial agent that helps accelerate acclimatization. It causes you to develop a mild metabolic acidosis that leads to increased respiratory drive and ventilatory acclimatization. But what about choice B, dexamethasone alone? Isn't that also correct? 
Dexamethasone alone is effective, but because of the potential side effects, its use is reserved for moderate to severe cases. Other supportive measures like fluids, analgesia, and antiemetics would have been good options in addition to cetazolamide had they been choices. And while we're talking about other choices, choice D continuing to ascend but at a slower rate. That's wrong because the first and most important step is to halt ascent and consider descending. Choice C, arranging for an era medical evacuation, that's reserved for more severe cases of acute mountain sickness and all cases of haste and hape. So the take-home point here is that for mild acute mountain sickness, first, halt ascent and treat supportively with fluids, oxygen, analgesia, and antiemetics. Acetazolamide can be tried and then dexamethasone as a second-line agent. All right, you're up next. We're headed back down to the ground level and into the ER. A 27-year-old G2P1 presents with vaginal bleeding and right lower quadrant pain. She reports a positive home pregnancy test with an LMP six weeks prior. Her vital signs are a temperature of 98.6, a blood pressure of 110 over 68, a heart rate of 72, and a respiratory rate of 16. Her abdomen is soft with mild tenderness in the right pelvic area. The pelvic exam is notable for a small amount of blood in the vagina and mild right adnexal tenderness. Bedside ultrasound shows an empty uterus and adjacent to the right ovary, a gestational sac with a yolk sac and fetal pole. Which of the following is a contraindication to methotrexate administration? Is it A, fetal heart rate, B, gestational sac greater than 2.5 centimeters in diameter, C, an HCG level of 3,000, or D, a history of an ectopic pregnancy? Well, you just said a ton of words in a long vignette, most of which don't really matter. Here's a classic question where you can skip right to the end. You're essentially asking which of these options is a contraindication to methotrexate for an ectopic pregnancy. That's great advice as a general test-taking strategy, but you still haven't answered the question. The answer here would have to be choice A, fetal heart rate. Correct. Methotrexate is relatively contraindicated when fetal heart activity is present, and it's associated with a high rate of treatment failure at this stage. In addition, hemodynamic instability or evidence of rupture on ultrasound are also contraindications. You just listed some exclusion criteria. It's also important to remember the inclusion criteria. In addition to being hemodynamically stable, without signs of rupture or without signs of fetal heart activity, you need to have a gestational sac less than 3.5 centimeters and be able and willing to comply with post-treatment monitoring. Great point. That's why choice B, a gestational sac greater than 2.5 centimeters, is wrong. That's less than the generally accepted cutoff of 3.5 centimeters. Choice C, a beta-HCG of 3,000, While there's no specific cutoff, research has shown that methotrexate is not as effective with HCG levels above 5,000, so this person would be eligible for methotrexate treatment. While we're on the topic of ectopic pregnancies, let's do a quick rapid review. What are some common risk factors for an ectopic pregnancy? Risk factors for an ectopic pregnancy include prior ectopics, history of PID, tubal surgery, or an IUD. And what's the most common site for an ectopic pregnancy? That would be the fallopian tubes. All right, and we touched on this a little bit, but how do you treat an ectopic pregnancy? Ectopics can be managed medically with methotrexate or surgically. And last one, what's the name of an ectopic pregnancy which may appear intrauterine on ultrasound? Weird question, but I think you're referring to an interstitial ectopic pregnancy, which occurs with implantation of the developing fetus in the interstitium of the myometrium. In such cases, the sac may have an eccentric appearance on sono, and there would be a thin endomyometrial mantle. All right, you're up next, and we're sticking with OB-GYN. A 32-year-old Gravita 2 Para 1 at 33 weeks gestation presents to the emergency room for sharp abdominal pain. She's not had any prenatal care during this pregnancy. Her symptoms include vaginal bleeding, uterine pain between contractions, and fetal distress. Her first pregnancy was uncomplicated with a vaginal delivery at term. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, placenta previa, B, placental abruption, C, uterine rupture, 
or D, vasa previa? Painful vaginal bleeding and fetal distress. I'm going to go with choice B, placental abruption. Definitely an obstetric emergency. Exactly. Placental abruption typically manifests as painful vaginal bleeding with evidence of fetal distress in the third trimester. Often the fundus will be tender and the patient will likely have pain between contractions. And you don't necessarily need to have vaginal bleeding. The bleeding may be completely or even partially concealed or may be intermixed with the amniotic fluid. Can you give us some common risk factors for abruption? Sure. Common risk factors for abruption include abdominal trauma, maternal hypertension, smoking, cocaine use, multiple gestation, and previous abruption. I think you got them all. Let me run through the other answer choices here. Choice C, uterine rupture. That classically presents with a sudden tearing uterine pain with contractions. The patient may also report pain-free intervals between contractions. You may also see vaginal hemorrhage and regression of the fetal parts depending on how far along the patient is in her delivery. Fetal distress is actually the most reliable presenting clinical symptom in uterine rupture. Choice A, placenta previa, that usually manifests as painless vaginal bleeding in the late second or third trimesters due to a placental tissue overlying the internal cervical os. Often, the bleeding occurs after intercourse. Remember that the sentinel bleed is rarely sufficient to produce hemodynamic instability. And lastly, choice D, vasa previa, that occurs when the umbilical cord inserts into the membranes of the lower uterine segment and amniotic blood vessels present in front of the fetal head. This usually presents with hemorrhage with amniotomy or spontaneous rupture of membranes. And keep in mind that the hemorrhage in the case of vasa previa is fetal blood, not maternal blood, so this can actually cause fetal exsanguination. And although not a choice here, there's one more condition I'd like to mention, placenta accreta, which occurs when the placenta attaches to the myometrium. Nice obstetrical review. Let's go over those again during the rapid review because it's pretty high yield. We're headed up the body for the next one. Perforation of what GI structure is associated with the highest mortality? Is it A, cecum, B, duodenum, C, esophagus, or D, stomach? Hmm, I wish there was a choice E here, all of the above. But there's not, so just throw something out there. Since I feel like all the others are more frequently operated on, I'll go with the odd man out, the esophagus. Well done. Perforation of any viscous is associated with significant morbidity and mortality, but perforation of the esophagus is often diagnosed late and results in a fulminant course, often culminating with death. Do you remember why this is the case? I think it has something to do with the thickness of the tissue. You're on the right path. Anatomically, the esophagus lacks a serosa layer, which means that the mediastinum is immediately contaminated following perforation. This is also why you need immediate broad-spectrum antibiotics, as well as a surgical consultation for a washout and repair. Can you list some common scenarios for esophageal rupture? And while you're doing that, where in the esophagus do they typically occur? Some of the common scenarios for this would be forceful vomiting, childbirth, cough, heavy lifting, endoscopy, and NG tube placement. In terms of location, more than 90% of spontaneous ruptures occur in the distal esophagus. When there's blunt trauma to the neck or thorax, the rupture is usually in the proximal or middle third. And lastly, for atrogenic injuries, most ruptures occur at the pharyngeoesophageal junction because that's where the wall is the thinnest. Excellent. And one final pearl to remember here, don't forget about Mackler's triad of lower chest pain, vomiting, and subcutaneous emphysema. If you come across this, look out for a chest x-ray with mediastinal air and consider an esophagram with water-soluble contrast. I think that about covers it. The next one was a really tough question with only about 30% of Rosh reviewers getting it right. An 18-year-old woman presents with fever, confusion, weight loss, and palpitations. Her vitals show a temperature of 100.7, heart rate of 140, blood pressure of 143 over 93, respiratory rate of 22, and oxygen saturation of 95%. 
She's alert and oriented times three with a regular fast heart rate and brisk reflexes. Her roommate tells you that the patient has been taking a friend's levothyroxine in an attempt to lose weight. What management should be initiated? Is it A, beta blocker, B, beta blocker and dexamethasone, C, beta blocker, dexamethasone, PTU, and potassium iodide, or D, calcium channel blocker and dexamethasone? Fever, tachycardia, hypertension, confusion, weight loss, palpitations in the setting of likely levothyroxine overdose? This is definitely thyroid storm due to exogenous thyroid hormone abuse, so the answer here is choice B, a beta blocker and dexamethasone. Correct on all accounts. The key here is differentiating the treatment of thyroid storm from exogenous versus endogenous thyroid hormones. When treating storm from endogenous thyroid hormone, you have to address four things. First, the peripheral effect should be blocked with a beta blocker. Propranolol is the beta blocker of choice as it also reduces peripheral conversion of T4 to T3. Second, you have to block synthesis with PTU or methimazole. Third, you have to block the release of more thyroid hormone with potassium iodide. And lastly, peripheral conversion of T4 to T3 should be blocked with steroids, usually dexamethasone. This also treats the relative adrenal insufficiency. You can actually give steroids a step three or four, but this is just how I remember it. And remember that PTU must be given one hour prior to giving the potassium iodide. If you get the order wrong and give the potassium iodide first, you can actually increase thyroid hormone production and release. Not good. Right. So what I was getting at is the treatment of endogenous thyroid storm would be choice C, beta blocker, dexamethasone, PTU, and potassium iodide. For an exogenous storm, there's no thyroid gland overproduction of hormone. It would likely be suppressed already, so you don't need the PTU and potassium iodide. That leaves the answer choice to be choice B, beta blocker and dexamethasone only. And in pregnancy, don't forget that PTU is preferred as methimazole is teratogenic. Remember P for pregnancy and PTU. In general, PTU is preferred because unlike methimazole, which only blocks the synthesis of thyroid hormone, PTU also decreases the conversion of T4 to T3 and its onset is also faster. If you remember one drug for thyroid storm, remember PTU. Again, that's a lot to remember, so we'll cover it again in the rapid review. You're up for the last question. A 53-year-old man complains of fever and non-productive cough. He's also short of breath with exertion. The x-ray, which is shown in the blog post, shows bilateral interstitial infiltrates in a, quote, batwing appearance. Which test will be an important part of his overall evaluation? Is it A, HIV antibody, B, PPD skin test, C, urine histoplasma antigen, or D, urine legionella antigen? I believe you're describing a chest x-ray of someone with PJP pneumonia. Since PJP pneumonia is often seen in those with HIV, I'll go with choice A, an HIV antibody. You're right. The x-ray shows bilateral interstitial infiltrates in the batwing configuration, which is a classic representation of PJP pneumonia. PJP, or formerly PCP, is typically seen in those who are immunocompromised, such as those with HIV. Patients on long-standing immunosuppressives like transplant recipients, autoimmune patients, and those that are acutely compromised from chemotherapy are also at risk. Specifically in patients with HIV, this is typically not present until the CD4 count is less than 200. And while we're discussing classic presentations, symptoms typically progress over two to three weeks, not acutely. Patients usually complain of a fever and dry cough. Oxygen desaturations with ambulations are common. As far as lab testing goes, there are two specific tests to be aware of. The first is the LDH, which is often elevated, and the second is the ABG. Those with a PaO2 less than 70 or with an AA gradient greater than 35 should be treated with steroids in addition to trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. We actually discussed this in episode 22 also. And the other answer choices here honestly aren't that terrible. 
A PPD should be part of this guy's overall evaluation, given his immunocompromised state, but this isn't the classic TB x-ray. A histoplasma antigen may also be helpful, as this is usually seen in immunocompromised states, but the HIV test would ultimately be more important to his overall evaluation. Lastly, a urine Legionella antigen may be useful, but the classic x-ray for someone with Legionella is usually a lobar pneumonia pattern. And don't forget that Legionella is also associated with hyponatremia, elevated LFTs, in addition to GI symptoms like vomiting and diarrhea. Alright, so that's it for new material. Let's close out with a rapid review. Acute mountain sickness is characterized by a headache, nausea, dizziness, lightheadedness, and sleep disturbances after rapid ascent of an unacclimatized person at 2,000 meters or higher. Mild acute mountain sickness should be treated first by a halting ascent and then supportively with fluids, oxygen, analgesia, and antiemetics. Acetazolamide and dexamethasone can be used as a second-line agent. When medically managing an ectopic pregnancy, Methotrexate is relatively contraindicated when fetal heart activity is present and contraindicated with hemodynamic instability or evidence of rupture on ultrasound. To be eligible for the treatment, you need to have a gestational sac less than 3.5 centimeters and be able and willing to comply with post-treatment monitoring. Risk factors for an ectopic pregnancy include prior ectopics, history of PID, tubal surgery, or an IUD. The fallopian tube is the most common location for an ectopic pregnancy. Be wary of interstitial ectopic pregnancies, which occur with implantation of the developing fetus in the interstitium of the myometrium. In such cases, the sac may have an eccentric appearance on sono, but there would be a thin endomyometrial mantle. Placental abruption typically manifests as painful vaginal bleeding with evidence of fetal distress in the third trimester. Often the fundus will be tender and the patient will have pain between contractions. Common risk factors for placental abruption include abdominal trauma, maternal hypertension, smoking, cocaine use, multiple gestation, and previous abruption. Uterine rupture classically presents with a sudden tearing uterine pain with contractions with pain-free intervals between contractions. Placenta previa, that usually manifests as a painless vaginal bleeding in the late second or third trimesters due to placental tissue overlying the internal cervical os. Vasa previa, that occurs when the umbilical cord inserts into the membranes of the lower uterine segment and amniotic blood vessels present in front of the fetal head. This usually presents with hemorrhage after amniotomy or spontaneous rupture of membranes. Esophageal rupture carries significant morbidity and mortality. It should be treated with immediate antibiotics and a surgical consultation. More than 90% of spontaneous ruptures occur in the distal esophagus. With blunt trauma to the neck or thorax, esophageal rupture is usually in the proximal or middle third of the esophagus. Atrogenic injuries frequently occur at the pharyngeoesophageal junction. Endogenous thyroid storm is treated with beta blockers, PTU, potassium iodide, and dexamethasone. Exogenous thyroid storm is treated with beta blockers and dexamethasone alone. In thyroid storm, propranolol reduces peripheral conversion of T4 to T3. PTU blocks synthesis of thyroid hormone. Potassium iodide blocks the release of thyroid hormone. Dexamethasone blocks the peripheral conversion of T4 to T3, in addition to treating the relative adrenal insufficiency. PJP pneumonia is typically seen in those who are immunocompromised. The X-ray will have bilateral interstitial infiltrates in a batwing configuration. If the PaO2 is less than 70, or the AA gradient is greater than 35, treat with steroids in addition to trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. All right, so that wraps up Roshcast episode number 25. Don't forget to listen for a trauma ringtone in the coming weeks for a chance to win a subscription to the Rosh Review. 